Hi, and welcome to The Missing Middle. I'm Kara Stern. And I'm Mike Moffat. And today we welcome Sabrina Maddow, who is a journalist and a political commentator. She's taken a leave of absence from those roles to run for a nomination of conservative candidate in Aurora, Oak Ridges, Richmond Hill. Welcome, Sabrina. Thanks for having me on, guys. So you are running in Aurora, Oak Ridges, Richmond Hill. I know that you live in Toronto. So why are you running there? I was born and raised and grew up in Richmond Hill. My family's still in Richmond Hill. And I always planned to move back to Richmond Hill. That's where I wanted to raise my family uh, and really put down roots. I initially moved to the city for work reasons in my uh, 20s. But because of the affordability crisis, that's been really, really tough. Um, The prospect of owning a home in the community is very out of reach. I'm one of the millennials who's locked out of affordable home ownership. But it's not just owning either. Uh, Rents in the area have gone up by double digits year over year. So even the prospect of renting there is very, very unaffordable. Um, And I'm not alone in that. That's a huge issue for my entire generation and Gen Z, the generation under me, that a lot of us can't afford to live in the communities we grew up in. Um, we can't afford to live near our families, our friends, uh, and we end up feeling very isolated because of that. It's also obviously a huge economic issue, but it's a social issue as well. And that's really what's inspired me to run. I think that if we're going to solve these issues, we need more people in parliament who have a real stake in fixing them and real experience with them. You know, I think it's fantastic that we've got another uh, Yimby voice who wants to throw their their hat into the political ring. I know you know you and I have been on panels together. Um, you know, we we read each other's writing. So, uh, you know, w- when it comes to Aurora, Oak Ridge's Richmond Hill, and just the you know the sort of York region in general. You know, I, I know you're excited to uh, deal with this housing and affordability crisis and take a, a Yimby lens, but there's probably going to be some NIMBY, uh, folks in, in your riding, some of which who may even be voting in the nomination. So, you know, h- how are you going to navigate that? Absolutely. You know, I think we're starting to see less and less resistance. Of course, there will always be some, um, but I think having, first of all, open conversations, um, and not demonizing one side is really important. Um, so I'm going to listen and talk to everybody. But from what I'm hearing, um, it's not just young people who want more housing and understand the importance now. It's starting to impact all generations. So I've heard from retired people in the riding or people looking at retiring who can't afford to downsize in their communities. And now they're realizing that this is a big issue that are seeing their children move across the province or thinking about moving out of the country. Uh, they worry about how young parents worry about how their young children are ever going to afford a home. So I think the crisis is to such an extent that it's becoming an overwhelming part of the population that realizes we need to do something to actually fix that. I know that roughly 40% of MPs own investment properties or invested in, in real estate in some way apart from their own home. And I think almost all of them own their own home. Do you have any idea, Sabrina, how many other people might be MPs who are renters who don't own property at all? Very few. Um, We don't have an official number that I've seen on that, but you can tell by looking at their financial disclosures that most MPs, like you said, do at least own their own home, um, a home. Many own multiple properties. Many are landlords. Uh, So when we're talking about solving this crisis, uh, a lot of them have a financial stake in it that's the opposite of someone like myself. In fact, the current Liberal MP in the riding owns multiple properties and investment properties. So I think that's something that really differentiates us as we move forward. 
Yeah, I do think members of parliament are, uh, you know, not always representative of the countries in a, in a variety of ways. And I say that as as somebody in Ottawa Center in the middle of the uh, in, in the middle of the Ottawa bubble. Um, you know, but to pivot from that, you know, you you've got a big profile. You know, you you're at the National Post. Everybody knows uh, your your uh, housing work. I think any political party, you know, would love to have you. So I got to ask, why why the conservatives? For me, the conservatives, especially under Pierre Polyev, he was one of the first politicians to really speak openly about the housing crisis. He was calling it out before the liberals were even willing to talk about it. And he's someone who, having spoken to him personally, but also followed his trajectory, is truly committed to solving it. Um, He's talked a lot about supply. He's now talking more about demand, especially on the immigration file, which has been a big issue. Uh, and I don't think any of the other parties are committed at all to solving it. In my opinion, the Liberals exasperated it over the last eight years as home prices doubled and rent soared. Um, and they made policy decisions that they knew was going to make affordability worse. And they still haven't done anything to reverse those. And I think the NDP under Jagmi also isn't serious. Um, every time he talks about housing, it's incredibly inconsistent. Just uh, this week, he had a video talking about luxury condos when it was actually very affordable housing. Um, condos aren't inherently luxury products. In fact, most of them are now entry-level homes or lived in by renters like myself. Um, and they're, they're smaller spaces than detached homes. It's the de- single detached homes that are the luxury product, not condos and apartment buildings. I think about that every time I hear someone's talk about luxury condos because it I know that sometimes yeah they have nice finishes and sure but when you're looking to buy a home it's it's actually the yeah as you said the cheapest option for most of the time not always although for some reason not as cheap as they should be compared to single family homes in my opinion but at the same time they are seen in a way that that single family homes aren't even though those are the kind of the true luxuries in my mind does it bug you that Pierre Polyev, his, I believe his wife owns several uh, investment properties? Um, so I know that it differentiates it, but his household owns investment properties. Does that bother you? You know, I don't think that we should be bringing someone's spouse into the political sphere. Um, you know, when someone decides to enter politics, that's a personal choice. And I, for me, it's not an issue if a spouse owns properties. So, so that the personal issue, uh, I, I first of all, I, I totally agree with that, and I, I think it does keep uh, good people out of politics. And you know, we're we're seeing the issues that that members of, of parliament uh, go through, and particularly women. So, you know, we've got you know Michelle Rempel Garner has talked about this. Uh, Catherine McKenna has, has uh, talked about this. So, you know, how concerned are you on those issues? And and did they uh, did deter you at all from from considering making this move? It was a thought. Um, when you look at the political environment right now, it it is toxic. The type of feedback that politicians get, the criticism has so intensified over the last several years um, because of a lot of the frustration out there, but because social media incentivizes it. Um, it promotes anger. It promotes people who like to troll and get attention through um, saying insulting things or threatening people. And that does keep, I think, a lot of people of all ages and genders out of politics. That said, it definitely has been historically worse for female politicians who get criticized and threatened in ways that male politicians as a whole don't tend to um, experience quite as poorly. So it's something I definitely thought about and I'm prepared for and I'm under no illusions that it won't happen. It's already started to happen. 
That said, as someone who's already been a public figure and a columnist in the political sphere, I've had a taste of that. I know it's going to ratchet up to level 100, but um, I've had that experience and the benefit of having to grow a bit of a thick skin. So I don't think it bothers me as much as someone who perhaps is just jumping into the public or political sphere for the very first time. You don't read the comments, do you? Don't read the comments. Yeah, that's rule number one as a journalist. In a lot of your articles uh, in the last couple of days that when you talk about why you're running, uh, you seem to put a lot of the blame on Justin Trudeau for high home prices. But we know that all levels of government have played a role. I know that uh, Pierre Polyev has been very vocal about the role of municipalities. But then we also know the province plays a huge role in, in housing. Why do you put so much of the blame on Justin Trudeau specifically? First of all, I do agree that every level of government has a role to play here. And the only way this is going to get solved is if we get all the levels of government to work together um, and we find a way to convince municipalities um, and provinces to work towards a solution. Uh, But under Trudeau, as I said before, housing has gotten way worse. Um, He has instituted policies that have only set new floors to housing prices and spurred demand, even, for example, the first home the first time home buyers account. Um, that's not really helping anyone save or afford a home. All that is doing is setting a new floor for prices. Um, there's been things that have worked to bail out current homeowners and investors. When we talk about granting people mortgage extensions, um, that's not just for people who use their homes as primary residences. That's also for investors who own multiple properties. Um, we found out in the last week or so that Liberals were warned when they decided to hugely ratchet up Canada's immigration numbers, especially when it came to uncapped international students and temporary foreign residents, that they were warned that that would have an impact on housing affordability and be quite disastrous. But they went ahead and decided to do that anyways and criticized anyone who criticized them in quite harsh terms. Um, And now they're finally thinking about backtracking that. But they chose, you know, to allow diploma mills to proliferate. for international students to come in and be taken advantage of themselves as people who are already here also suffered the affordability um, impacts of that. And with temporary foreign workers, they chose low wage employers over again, housing affordability and younger generations. So there's been a lot of instances where they could have made different choices, but they actively chose not to and affordability got way worse. Yeah, well, certainly you, you, you know, mentioned uh, that, that people had been saying that the linkage between population growth and housing prices. And I know some of those people, uh, I may even be some of those people, um, you know, and I, you know, I, I think you make a really good point around inter- international students and temporary foreign workers. So, so what would you like to see happen? Or, you know, what if, you know, there was an election uh, today, uh, your party comes in power. What do you do uh, with uh, these, uh, you know, increases in temporary foreign workers and, and international students? On international students, we really have to crack down on the diploma mills. Um, these places that really are taking advantage a lot of the time of international students. They barely have classrooms. Uh, they don't offer any sort of real education that needs to be addressed so that when students are coming here, they're actually coming to learn um, to to have the experience in Canada that even they expect. Because I want to be clear that international students are often one of the first victims of these policies and they're living in really awful conditions in rooming houses. Um, they're going to food banks. Um, so this is an issue that impacts the international students themselves as they're being exploited. So that needs to definitely be solved. Um, But we also need to encourage universities to provide more housing in line with their enrollment. Um, For low-wage 
employers, we need to encourage them to raise wages um, rather than take advantage again of temporary foreign workers and allow them to just bring in unlimited numbers of people. If, if they would like to bring in temporary foreign workers, I believe that they really need to prove a strong case for it, which they don't have to right now. And overall, we need to have a more sustainable immigration policy as we ramp up housing supply. I believe immigration is a great thing. I think it's been one of Canada's biggest strengths historically, um, economically, culturally, socially. There are so many benefits. And if we want to continue to have those benefits and have a consensus around immigration, uh, then we need to slow things down temporarily as we figure out how we're going to build more housing to accommodate this rapid growth. I think it's great when there's more millennials getting into politics because I feel like we're like we're not represented enough. There's not that many people with power who are facing the same situations. And even the ones who are often come from a higher class. Um, and I mean, that's across the board. But in, with millennials, uh, it's no different. Um why do you think that not that many millennials have decided to run for office? I think there are a lot of barriers for younger people. I think in general, um, historically, politicians haven't spoken a lot to younger generations or tried to involve them because they've written them off as people who aren't engaged or don't vote. And that's something I think we're seeing change and I really hope proves out in the next election at the ballot box. Uh, but even, you know, our political system when it comes to nominations across like any party. It's not incredibly transparent. People don't even know how to get started. I would love to see more education so that people understand if they want to get involved, this is how you do it. Um, there are also economic barriers, whether like myself, you have to take a leave from a job. Um, you have to perhaps give up you know, a lot of your time because campaignings, you know, that's your nights, your weekends. If you're keeping a job, if you're leaving your job, then that's a full-time thing. Um, that's a big economic barrier, especially if you're running in the general election, you need to campaign full-time and a lot of people can't afford to take that time off work or they're mul working multiple jobs. I mean, so many millennials now have their nine to five and then they have their side hustle in the evening or they're, you know, driving for Uber or delivering for Uber Eats and doing gig work. Um, they don't, have the time. Um, and young parents as well. It's a challenge. Obviously, if you have children and the lifestyle is being back and forth between Ottawa and then you're riding and that gets harder the further away you are from Ottawa. So it, it is a thankless gig. And I think we need to find ways to make it more appealing and easier for people to um, get better quality candidates, but also a more diverse range of candidates. You said that it's hard for people to know what kind of goes into building a campaign. What went, what went into it for you when you're trying to build a team? How did that work and who's on your team? For me, I mean, I had the advantages, again, of being a political columnist. So being linked into that system already and knowing people who are campaign managers um, who work in political comms, who work in branding. So my campaign manager is Ariella Kimmel. She's a former um, labor and immigration Minister Monty McNaughton um, on Ontario on the Ontario side's uh, director of went to of university comms, with she, her at Carleton. Really? Yeah, yeah. small world. That's yeah. so funny. Um, but she's absolutely fantastic. And another young woman in politics who's very strong and very intelligent. Um, and then my branding team is Tester Digital out of Ottawa, led by Dean Tester, who has also been a huge housing affordability advocate. And that's how I first connected with him. Um, and then we've had a lot of volunteers come on since. One of the first questions I get when I talk to people about running as a nominee, they're like, well, what does that mean? What is a nomination? Um, they don't understand that you have to win a nomination to become the actual candidate on the ballot. 
so just even having to explain that process and, you know, the forms you have to fill out and, you know, the finance implications with Elections Canada and the way you have to campaign and sell memberships and only people within your riding who are members of the party can vote for you. It is quite convoluted. Um, so I think we need to find ways to communicate that more clearly. So let, let's talk a little bit about that uh, nomination. So, you know, the, the riding that you're running in, it, yes, it, it currently has a liberal MP, but it's a very conservative friendly riding. So you would imagine that there, or at least as on the sidelines, I would be looking at this going, wow, you know, there's likely going to be a lot of, of interest for, from uh, potential candidates uh, to get that conservative nomination. So, you know, do you know who you're competing with? Uh, obviously, you probably like your chances, but or otherwise you wouldn't be doing this. But, uh, you know, how do you see that nomination battle shaping up? You're right. It is a winnable riding. Um, it was lost by only about 1,500 votes last time around, and it was very close to the time before that as well. Um, if you look at polling, it looks like it's going to go blue next election. Um, so there is interest. Um, every conservative nomination race has really been competitive so far. And I think they'll continue to be, especially around the GTA, where a lot of seats are expected to flip and look like they're going to flip. Um, so, yes, it will be a contested and competitive nomination. Um, currently, there's one other candidate in the race. She's a town councillor in Aurora. Um Others could enter. That's something we're going to have to see over the next little while. But, you know, I'm willing to work hard and I'm not someone who ever takes anything for granted. So while I'm confident, I'm going to be out there for hours a day in the cold, knocking on doors and then back home making phone calls uh, because, like you said, you give up a lot to enter this. And, you know, it's going to if it's going to be a fight, I'm willing to take part in that fight. When is the race? So that's always the other thing about nominations. Uh, nomination votes happen at all different times in different ridings. Some have already happened throughout the fall. Um, there will be quite a few more this spring and going into the summer and perhaps even after that. So the party hasn't announced yet what the date is for this particular nomination vote. I'm hopeful that it will be this spring within the next few months. But uh, that's the other challenge when you're talking about people entering politics is sometimes the timelines can be quite fuzzy. So you don't know how long you're campaigning for, how long you're on leave for. Um, and it, even when we're looking at the next general election, no one knows when that's going to happen. The latest it can be is October 2025. But theoretically, it could happen at any point in time. There are lots of journalists who learn a lot about politics and get ideas of how things can be changed for the better. Um, but many of them don't end up running for office. And often when they do, they're older, they're towards the end of their careers because they know it's hard to get back into journalism once you either if you don't win or if you do win and then you want to get back into journalism, it's hard, especially if you don't win, though. Like if you run, you've declared yourself, I'm going to run with this banner and then you try to go back to being a journalist, it's, it's difficult. Um, and I know that you, you know, as a columnist, you share your opinion. So I'm sure that the opinions you've shared are not what you're going to talk about in the election probably align quite nicely with that. But being a capital C conservative, does that worry you about people not being able to see you kind of as objective when you decide if you decide you want to get back into journalism at some point one day? You know, it is a big leap. Um, and it's something that, of course, I've considered and has crossed my mind. Um, but to me, this is such a pivotal moment. And um, I'm someone who, like we have spoken about this entire time, actually is kind of a unique position where I can jump into this race and have a shot at winning and having have a shot at representing renters and young women and millennials and young people in general in Parliament. So I really felt a responsibility to do that at this point in time, because I do think the next election will be a critical moment to reverse course. 
Um, and so I'm you know, willing to make that sacrifice at this point in time. And if worse comes to worse and, you know, I lose the nomination, that's something I'm going to have to figure out. But luckily, you know, we have also a lot of avenues to independent journalism these days and having your own platform. Uh, and I have always had a consistent voice um, when it comes to values, when it comes to housing affordability, um, what formerly you would call small C conservative issues, which I'm now taking on that capital C conservative banner. Uh, so I think that consistency has also been there. So if I do want to jump back into media, um, I'm hopeful that people realize that my values haven't changed. And, you know, if and hopefully when I win and go to Parliament, I plan to keep saying the same things, talking about the same issues and pushing for the same changes I have been for years now. Well, I think it's fantastic uh, that, you know, whenever uh, good people run, I think that's uh, fantastic and particularly and doubly so when you've got uh, people who care so much about the housing crisis as I know uh, you do. So I just wanted to say thank you uh, for, for coming on The Missing Middle and talking about uh, the housing crisis and, and uh, why you're making this leap. And I just want to say best of luck in the nomination. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. And I also appreciate you guys talking so much about housing and affordability and all the work you've done over the years. It's We need more people having this conversation and having it loudly um, and intelligently. And that's exactly what you do. So happy to come on anytime. Thanks for watching and listening. This podcast is produced by Meredith Martin. Please like, subscribe and comment. We'd love to hear from you. And we'll see you next time.